Section 4 of the South American Republics, Volume 2, by Thomas Cleland Dawson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Piotr Nater. Part 1. Peru. Chapter 4. The Colonial Period. The Spanish occupation of Peru was a conquest, not a colonization. The narrow plateau from Colombia to Chile and the adjacent dry valleys on the Pacific and in northwestern Argentina had been found fully populated by civilized races. The work of subjugating them was practically accomplished within eight or ten years after Pizarro landed in Ecuador, and this marvelous result was achieved by private adventurers who, though they held communications from Madrid, really acted on their own responsibility. A very few appreciated the advisability of well-treating the Indians and thereby preserving the effective industrial organization but the vast majority concerned themselves only with immediate profit. For eighteen years the original conquerors and the adventurers who followed in their track fought over the spoils. When the Marquis of Cañete was appointed viceroy, he found eight thousand Spaniards in Peru alone, four hundred and eighty-nine of whom had grants of land and Indians. We can never know the sufferings of the Indians during these civil wars. The chroniclers tell us minutely the stories of the battles, marches, sieges, surprises, assassinations, and deeds of military prowess, but little of the destruction and abandonment of the irrigating canals and terraces, the ruin of the magnificent roads, the breaking up of the ancient socialistic system, the impressment of natives into the rebel bands, the death by exhaustion of thousands dragging artillery over the steep mountain paths the starvation of whole villages robbed of their crops but the sturdy physique of the andean indians and their perfect adaptation to the climatic conditions saved them from extermination in the midst of the devil's dance of spanish carnage the inca officers reported minutely the crops stolen or destroyed and the deficiencies were made up as far as possible from the villages which had escaped for the time being naturally the spanish government was anxious to put an end to such a state of affairs considerations of self-interest reinforced the eloquent indignation of las casas but the new laws could not be put into effect notwithstanding the sentiment of fidelity to the castilian king and the growth of considerable cities in which spanish law and custom were dominant the only real cities which the incas had built were cuzco in central peru quito in ecuador and charcas in bolivia and after the conquest they continued a village-dwelling people but the spaniards true to the instinct inherited from roman times preferred to live in cities within a few years they had established municipalities not only at the three inca capitals but at pura lima trujillo loja la paz guamanga jauja and numerous other places the enlightened advisers of charles v came to the conclusion that peru could never become a loyal and profitable appanage of the crown until freedom of action was granted to its government don andres hurtado de mendoza marquis of cañete accepted the difficult post of viceroy he was a scion of the noble house of spain distinguished alike in arms and letters capable and resolute of mature years and wide experience his salary was fixed at the then fabulous sum of forty thousand ducats in order to enable him to maintain regal state and accompanied by his vice-queen and an imposing retinue he assumed power with ceremonial splendour 
he prohibited further immigration from Spain and ordered that no Spaniard in Peru should leave his district without permission. Though the encomienderos were left in possession of their estates, they were made to understand that they must seize the more outrageous forms of oppressing the natives. He sent for the most notorious disturbers, and they came joyfully expecting to receive grants, but they were summarily disarmed and banished. He employed the more adventurous in expeditions to the interior and in completing the conquest of Chile. All the artillery in the country was gathered under his eye, and the corregidors were required to dismiss most of their soldiery. Finally, the viceroy continued Pizarro's policy of founding cities into which were gathered the Spaniards who remained scattered over the country. He did much to alleviate the lot of the natives, though he dared not venture on giving them all the rights guaranteed by Spanish law. No efforts were spared to hispanolize the Inca nobles, and native chiefs who could prove their right by descent were formally allowed to exercise jurisdiction as magistrates. Even the rightful emperor, Sairi Tupac, who had maintained his independence in the wilds of Vilcabamba, was induced to swear allegiance and accept a pension and estate in the valley of Yucay. When the Inca had attested the documents by which he renounced his sovereignty, he lifted up the gilded fringe of the tablecloth, saying, quote, All this cloth and its fringe were mine, and now they give me a thread of it for my sustenance and that of all my house. End quote. Returning to Yucay, he sent into a deep melancholy and died within two years. In the meantime, Charles V had been succeeded by Philip II. The Marquis of Cañete's liberal and enlightened policy did not wring money from the unhappy country fast enough to suit the greedy despot. He listened to the slanders against the good viceroy, brought home by disappointed Spaniards, and Cañete's reward for five years of brilliant service was a recall. Only his death saved him from hearing with his own ears the reproaches of his ungrateful sovereign. Several years elapsed before Philip found a man who possessed the courage, capacity, mercilessness, and obstinacy to devise and apply a system which would make Peru a mere machine to produce gold and silver for the Spanish crown. Such a one was Don Francisco de Toledo, a member of the same ancient house to which the Duke of Alva belonged. To him belongs the distinction of founding the infamous colonial system, the origin of the misery and disorder from which Spanish South America has suffered ever since, and the potent, if not the principal cause, of the decline of Spain herself and the loss of her magnificent colonial empire. Toledo reached Lima in 1569, leaving Spain just after the news had been received that William the Silent and his Hollanders had risen in revolt against the cruelties of Alva and gained the victory of Groningen. The new viceroy first devoted himself to the destruction of the native dynasty. Sairi Tupac's younger brothers, Titoyupanqui and Tupac Amaru, still roamed free in the forests of Vilcabamba. The Spaniards had hitherto not interfered with the Indians celebrating their national festivals with their ancient solemnities, and Toledo came to Cusco to be present at one which he had determined should be the last. As soon as it was over, he sent for Titu to come in and take the oath of allegiance. Titu died of an illness, but the chiefs swore fealty to the boy Tupac Amaru and refused to put him in the power of the Spaniards. The exasperated viceroy sent a force which captured the young emperor. 
brought to Cuzco, Toledo ordered him to be decapitated, and the head was stuck upon a pike and set up beside the scaffold. One moonlit night a Spaniard went to the window of his bedchamber, which overlooked the great square, and saw the whole vast space packed with a crowd of kneeling, silent people, their faces all turned to the Inca's grisly head. It was the Indians devoutly worshipping the last relic of their beloved and unfortunate sovereign. But there was no spirit left in them for rebellion, and no centre for them to rally around. Toledo's executions exterminated the leading Incas and half-castes. The celebration of Indian rites was forbidden, and everything which might remind the people of the fallen regime destroyed or removed. Toledo's Libro de Tassas, or Code of Regulations, is the base of the system under which the Spanish colonies were governed for more than two centuries. The Spaniards were practically recognized as belonging to a privileged and governing caste. The country was divided into about fifty districts, called Corregimientos, each under the rule of a corregidor. This official was substantially absolute, so far as the Indians were concerned, although an effort was made to keep up parts of the ancient Inca organization, and in practice the hereditary village chiefs administered justice and exercised considerable power. Every male Indian between the ages of eighteen and fifty were compelled to pay a certain tribute or poll tax, for whose collection their chiefs were responsible. About one-sixth of the Indians belonged to estates already granted, and these paid their tribute to the proprietors, the crown deducting one-fifth. The other five-sixths paid directly to the representatives of the government. In consideration of this tribute, general and indiscriminate personal service was declared to be abolished, but the commutation was not in full. One-seventh of the Indians were required to work for their masters, and the wretched victims of this quote-unquote mitta were sent by their caciques to the nearest Spanish town, where they could be engaged by anyone who required their services. But these were not all the burdens. The natives of the provinces near the mines were compelled to furnish the labor necessary to work them, and the poor creatures to whose lot it fell to go might never hope to return. Oppressive as was the latter of these laws, their practical application was made infinitely worse by evasion practiced with the connivance of the corregidors. Hundreds of Indians were hunted down and carried away to work on farms and in factories under the pretext that the mitta returns had not been honestly made, and though the population decreased, the survivors were required to furnish the same number of victims each year. In spite of the slaughter during the civil wars, the Peruvian Indians numbered eight millions in 1575. Including the outlying provinces, the population of the Inca Empire must have reached twenty millions in the heyday of its prosperity. Horrible as had been the decrease of the first forty years of Spanish domination, it was a trifle to that which followed the establishment of Toledo's system. In 1573, the impressment for the Potosi mines produced eleven thousand laborers, one hundred years later, only sixteen hundred could be found. In the non-mining provinces, the destruction was not so stupendous, but some encomiendas, originally containing a thousand adults, were reduced to a hundred within a century, and the miserable survivors were compelled to pay the same sum as had been assessed to their ancestors. 
The total population of Peru proper had fallen to less than a million and a half within two centuries, and that of the whole empire to not more than four millions. So great had been the mortality among the feebler inhabitants of the warm coast valleys that they had practically died out, and their places were taken by negro slaves, whose importation began shortly after the conquest. The Indians were the worst, but not the only sufferers. The Creole descendants of the early Spanish settlers, though they nominally enjoyed the same rights as the later arrivals, in reality had small chance to participate in the offices and fat concessions. Each new viceroy brought a new swarm of needy noblemen who regarded the Creoles with lofty disdain. Commerce, except with Spain, was forbidden, and even that was burdened with almost intolerable burdens. As time went on, new taxes were devised, until it seemed the deliberate purpose of the Spanish government to transfer all the gold and silver in Peru's mountains to the royal treasury. Not only were both imports and exports taxed, but also every pound of provisions sold in the markets and shops. One-fifth of the products of the mines and one-tenth of the crops went directly to the crown. All kinds of businesses had to pay licenses, Quicksilver and tobacco were monopolies, and offices were regularly sold to the highest bidder. Nevertheless, the Spanish occupation brought many incontestable benefits in South America. To say nothing of the civilized system of jurisprudence, the letters and the religion which have made the people of the continent members of the great Western European family, the introduction of new and valuable animals, grains and fruits, raised the level of average well-being among the surviving inhabitants. Horses, asses, cattle, sheep, goats, pigs, chickens, pigeons, wheat, barley, oats, rice, olives, grapes, oranges, sugar-cane, apples, peaches, and related fruits, and even the banana and the cocoa palm were introduced by the Spaniards. In return, Europe owes to Peru maize, potatoes, chocolate, tobacco, cassava, Ipecacuania, and quinin. Toledo had put his colonial system in full operation by 1580, and from that time to nearly the close of the Spanish epoch, the story of Peru offers little of interest. Expansion ceased. The colonists made no effort to spread over the Amazon plain, or to prevent the Portuguese on the Atlantic coast from occupying the interior of the continent almost to the foot of the Andes. On the seacoast of Venezuela and the plains of the lower plate, the Spanish race still showed a scanty fraction of that vigor and enterprise which had enabled the early conquerors to spread over half the continent in a few short years. But in Peru, Ecuador, and Bolivia, the country slowly decayed. Though the viceroys who followed each other in rapid succession were selected from among the greatest grandees of Spain, they were held to an increasingly rigid account, and the smallest concession to commerce, or a failure to send home the utmost farthing which could be wrung from the people, was severely and peremptorily punished. Their jurisdiction extended over all Spanish South America. The captains-general of New Granada, Venezuela, and Chile, the royal audience of Bolivia, the president of Ecuador, and the governors of Tucumán, Paraguay, and Buenos Aires, being all nominally subject to their orders. But in practice, these widely separated divisions of the continent were largely independent. Lima was, however, the political, commercial, and social center of South America. 
To its port came from Panama the goods destined for Peru, Chile, Bolivia, and even Paraguay and Buenos Aires. Many of the viceroys were lovers of letters, and the university produced scholars and authors not unworthy comparison with those of the old world. The continual influx of Spaniards of distinguished Castilian ancestry and gentle training made the language of even the common people singularly pure, and the sonorous elegance of the Spanish tongue as spoken during the classical period has been best preserved in the comparative isolation of Peru. The influence of the bishops and priests, the Jesuits and the Franciscans, was hardly inferior to that of the officials. The clergy controlled education. Every village had its parish priest who compelled the Indians to go to mass and made them pay heavily for the privilege. The Inquisition was early introduced and performed its dreadful functions without let or hindrance. The regulations which attempted to confine the oppression of the Indians within bearable limits were persistently violated, not only by private individuals, but by corregidors themselves. Kidnapping was reduced to a system, and often all the male adults of a village were dragged off to work in the mines, leaving only the women and children to till the fields. The corregidors went into partnership with merchants, and the poor Indians were compelled to purchase articles for which they had no use, and thrown into slavery to work out the debt if they failed to pay. The wiser viceroys did not waste their energies in vain efforts to mitigate the profitable abuses. They devoted their attention rather to the exaction of the last penny of taxes, to be spent in maintaining the hoard of office-holders, or to be remitted to Spain. So rigidly was taxation enforced, and so successful were the Spaniards in finding rich mines of silver, gold, and mercury, that early in the seventeenth century the revenue had reached the sum, enormous of those days of low prices, of nearly five hundred thousand pounds, of which about half was regularly sent to Madrid. Foreign nations could not effectively interfere with Spain's commercial and fiscal monopoly. The isthmus was in her hands, and the voyage through Magellan's Straits or around Cape Horn was too stormy and uncertain for the slow, clumsy ships of that age, and only a few English and Dutch expeditions, half trading, half piratical, ravaged the coast towns in the seventeenth century. The most memorable event of Peru's history during the seventeenth century was the revelation of the sovereign virtue of Quinine. The Lima physicians were unable to cure the Countess of Chinchon, the Viceroy's wife, of a stubborn attack of malarial fever, but the rector of the Jesuit college had received some fragments of an unknown bark from a Jesuit missionary to whom they had been given by an Indian in the mountainous wilds of southern Ecuador. Doses of this quickly restored the Vice-Queen, and when Linnaeus named the world's plants in scientific order, he called the genus to which the tree belonged, Chinchona, from the viceroy through whom its virtues had come to notice. The succession of the Bourbons to the Spanish crown at the beginning of the 18th century brought about a considerable change of colonial policy. To England was conceded the privilege of exporting Negroes to South America, and French vessels were permitted to come round the Horn, and trade at Peruvian ports. The latter concession was soon revoked, and the commerce of the Pacific coast again became a monopoly for the ring of merchants at Cadiz. 
The Atlantic, however, by this time swarmed with ships of all the European maritime powers, and it was impossible to prevent smuggling at the Caribbean and Argentine ports. The Madrid government reluctantly came to the conclusion that it was impossible to administer effectually from Lima the provinces which were commercially tributary to the Caribbean Sea. In 1740, Bogotá, on the populous plateau of eastern New Granada, was made the capital of a new viceroyalty, under whose jurisdiction were placed the Capitancy-General of Venezuela and the Presidency of Quito. Buenos Aires was a resort for contraband traders under non-Spanish flags, and smuggling through that port so increased that goods coming from Spain by the Panama route were undersold in the markets of Argentina, Paraguay, Chile, Bolivia, and even Peru itself. In 1776 the southern Atlantic region was detached from Lima, and to the new viceroyalty of Buenos Aires were attached not only the plate provinces, Buenos Aires and Paraguay, but also that part of Chile which lay east of the Andes, as well as Tucumán and the Audiencia of Charcas, as far north as Lake Titicaca. By these changes Peru was reduced to its present dimensions, except that Chile remained attached as a semi-independent captaincy-general. Three times since its foundation had Lima been nearly destroyed by earthquakes, but none of them was to be compared with the convulsion which in 1746 reduced the whole city to a shapeless mass of ruins. More than a thousand people perished, a great wave engulfed Callao, drowning half the population and carrying great ships far inland. The expulsion of the Jesuits in 1767 was effected without difficulty. In the neighborhood of Lima alone they owed 5,000 Negro slaves and property to the value of $2 million, and every penny of their immense accumulations was confiscated by the government. The great Indian rebellion, which had so long been expected, broke out in 1780 under the leadership of Tupac Amaru, the lineal descendant of the last of the reigning Inca emperors. In Peru proper, it did not spread beyond the southern frontier provinces, and the story of its suppression belongs to Bolivia. The authorities were so alarmed that the reforms to procure which Tupac had risked and lost his life were shortly after voluntarily adopted. The vitality and fighting qualities of the half-breeds now stood revealed, and the Creoles, jealous of imported officials and dissatisfied at their exclusion from places of honor and profit, realized that a weapon lay ready to their hands when they should determine upon revolution. General Theodore de Croix, a Fleming, was entrusted with the reorganization and reform made necessary by the Indian rebellion. The corregidors, petty tyrants over whom no effective control could be maintained, were abolished. The country was divided into a few great provinces, each ruled by an intendant, to whom were responsible the subdelegados, who had charge of local affairs, and measures were taken for the enforcement of the laws intended to protect the Indians. By the year 1790, these valuable reforms had been put into effect, but they came too late. Ideas of liberty had begun to infiltrate into the educated classes, and among the Creoles, the abstract right of Peru to autonomous government became the subject of secret, though widespread, discussion. A succession of able and liberal viceroys, however, averted the danger for the time, 
and the outbreak of the revolution in the rest of South America found Peru ruled by Abascal, whose energy, foresight, and determination not only prevented an insurrection at Lima, but nearly saved all South America to Spain. End of section 4